Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. This is our second season. We had uh, 22 episodes last year uh, for 2022, and and I really enjoyed our, our conversations with so many guests. We covered so many topics, and uh, again, just to kind of remind us of what I'm tr- what we're trying to do with this podcast is. The scholarly world operates with certain givens, you know, after years and years of study and even questions about history and background, I mean, scholars pretty much have a certain um, collected knowledge, you might say, that we all kind of know about. And so what we're trying to do, what some scholars try to do on, on a much more specific level is kind of drill deeper on certain topics uh, with regards to the Old or New Testament or even the interbiblical literature. Um, and and that, of course, is is a whole different world uh, compared to the church world. And, and I'm not trying to pit one against the other, although some do that. But one of the things that surprises, surprised me, you know, the deeper I got into studying on the academic level the Old Testament and New Testament, the more I begin to realize, my goodness, there's this huge gap uh, of what is kind of acceptable understanding about the scriptures um, compared to the church world. And there are just so many facets of the Bible. It's like a multifaceted diamond. The scholars loved, you know, like jewelers, they love to get their their um, their glass out and, and look at it carefully. And, and lay people love the scriptures, and, and we read it, right, for ourselves, but Sometimes we don't notice things that uh, are important, helping understand not only what the Bible is, but the message it conveys. So what I'm trying to do here is help us appreciate the dynamics uh, of Scripture um, and certain facets of the Old and New Testaments that are uh, kind of commonplace and are commonly accepted and recognized that a lot of lay people are like, I didn't know that. Really? That's true? And so hoping that uh, kind of closing the gap, you might say, between uh, academics and the life of the church. At the same time, I, I, I'm learning. I mean, I, I hope that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you never grow weary of learning God's word. If you, for all of us, if we ever get to the point where we have it all figured out, you know, we've got our theological system, we've got it all figured out, this is exactly what everyone's supposed to believe, and and I'm not learning anymore, instead all I'm doing now is defending what I know to be true, there is a, I think there's a certain staleness that happens with that, there's an arrogance that develops, and for me, in my own spiritual formation, I've just... I seem to grow in Christ in ways that I hadn't before the more I learn about the scriptures. The more I learn, the more the scriptures come alive in my mind and in my heart, the more I realize, I think, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm hoping that we'll just keep learning. And um, I know that there are things that you are learning that you perhaps would like to uh, ask. And, and so I would like for us to do that, if you don't mind. Uh, we've had a few um, 
people who subscribers who, who listen to podcasts on a regular basis. And a couple of them said, well, what if we have a question? Is there a question that we could ask that you would try to answer? And I thought, that's a great idea. So if you have a question <laughs> that you think would be helpful in light of the purpose of our podcast here, you can send the question to, and here, here's the addre- address, about the Bible, about the Bible, A-B-O-U-T-T-H-E-B-I-B-L-E, at FBC, which is abbreviation for First Baptist Church, fbcjonesboro.org, O-R-G. About the Bible at fbcjonesboro.org. We'll get your question, and it may be an occasion where I think, oh, that's a really good question, um, and uh, I need to do a little work on this, and I know a scholar who's already addressed it um, in ways that could be very helpful to all of us. Because I'm learning as I'm engaging some of these scholars that we've uh, brought into the podcast, I just continue to learn and marvel over the depth and the brilliance and the relevance uh, of God's timely word that is also timeless. So please send us your questions. We'll we'll try to answer them <laughs> the best we can. Um, also, a word about this year. I mean, we'll probably have the same number of podcasts. I want to kind of kind of same uh, uh, stick to the same schedule. We we'll try to release episodes twice a twice a month. I think this year it was becoming harder and harder to schedule scholars. I mean, scholars are really busy. You wouldn't believe the teaching load that they carry. <laughs> Um, and all the work they do in a university or a seminary, a lot of work. And then they write on top of that and do research for the scholarly world, some write for the church world as well. So it's, it was becoming harder and harder to get uh, guests to appear on the podcast. So I may be flying solo more often this year than, than last year, and we'll see how that works. But I hope you'll tune in. And please, if you don't mind, if this podcast is something you find beneficial, uh, Josh works hard on this. We, we try to pr- produce something that we think is going to help the church. And if you uh, are encouraged, would you share the podcast? I mean, our uh, subscriptions are growing. Uh, the number of subscribers, we've got more and more people watching it. We're in the thousands now, which is really encouraging. Um, I really didn't think. I, I started this podcast. We started this podcast really to minister to our church and, and maybe some people uh, in the area. But we're, we're having people listen to the podcast now outside even our state, the United States, even around the world. So that's really encouraging. And would you please um, share if, if this podcast encourages you? If it doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> don't um i guess do what you need to do if you don't do whatever you do don't listen to that podcast that's fine uh, uh, different strokes for different folks we're just trying to be faithful to the lord okay today um i want to talk about john's gospel i guess we could call this episode what you didn't know about john's gospel and i know we're so used to reading the four gospels in a way where we harmonize them, and we, we can't help but do this. This is what we do, all of us. We're, we, we want to study our Lord. We want to know what he taught. We want to know what he did. And as we think about his life, and you see maybe a Jesus film or um, 
you think even in your own head, we have this kind of mono narrative, a meta narrative, where what we do is we pull stuff from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together and develop a life of Jesus in our head, in our heart. But one of the tools of critical scholarship that really helped me begin to appreciate what's in the Gospels is a literary criticism. It's an approach that says, you know what? The gospel writers didn't think, okay, I'm going to write this gospel, but I know two or three or four others are going to write theirs. No, no, no. They, and so they might fill in the blanks of what I don't cover. I mean, you hear the exasperation, right, or at least a little bit of frustration tone of uh, the editor at the end of John's gospel. It says, you know, so many other things that Jesus did. We couldn't produce enough books to fill a library. I mean, it, it just no library could contain them all. So there is indeed this constraint, you know, the gospel, if you ever wonder why they're as long as they are, well, that's about the largest document you could produce on a papyrus roll. That's about as big as you can make them. So when the gospel writers begin to set pen to paper and they start telling the story of Jesus, they want to highlight some things. And there are other many other things that they could have talked about, but they don't. And reading the gospel as if we're putting blinders on. Like, I'm going to read John's gospel, but I'm not going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm not even going to subconsciously import them, right? I'm just going to, what is John trying to tell me in his gospel? And when you do that, and you probably have seen it before, this exercise, but if you read John's gospel by itself, just for what it is, from start to finish, and take it almost like a film, right? You're coming into that world and looking at how he pulls it together, and, and these gospel writers are geniuses. And, of course, they're inspired by God, but, oh, my goodness, every gospel writer has his own unique tone and take and perspective on the life of Jesus and the significance of what he said and did. But if you read like John by itself, here's some things that begin to surprise you. There, If all you had was John's gospel, You'd be surprised to know that Jesus did and says some things that make it into Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but don't appear in John. Just not there. Um, and it'll surprise you. So that's what I want to talk about. The things that you wouldn't know if all you had was John's gospel. And then the things that John uniquely shares um, that's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That, you know, if all you had were the synoptic gospels, you wouldn't know these things. So I want to talk about, you might say, the uniqueness of John. First, what he doesn't include, like we have this common knowledge because we've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but the things, the stories uh, about Jesus that did not make it into John's gospel, and of course, once I finish this list, you'll go, hmm, I wonder why. Why would he exclude all of that? Uh, but also, there are some um, ways that we understand Jesus, the significance of his life, his ministry, his work, that are basically gr rooted, grounded in John's gospel that don't even appear in the synoptics. And I'm throwing that word synoptic. You may be familiar with it. It comes from a Greek word, two Greek words, soon, a preposition um, that means together or with. And optic, we know that word, 
what is seen or how you see. So synoptic is they see together. And what what that term basically describes is how Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to follow the same chronology for the life of Jesus. But John, he has a completely different chronology. All right, so here, let's start with first. What you did know about John's gospel, um, what he does not include. If all you had were John's gospel, you would know that Jesus taught in parables. I mean, that's one of the great distinctive features of Jesus's ministry is how much he loved to spin a story at a thin air. And often many of these stories are built on Old Testament stories. He's kind of taking and tweaking and reinventing. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus spends all his time trying to explain, try to get people to envision the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. So he tells parable after parable after parable. And the parables are not illustrations of a point he's making. The parable is the point. And he's trying to do two things at the same time, deconstruct the way we see the world, we don't see it correctly, and then reconstruct this is the way the world should be. And think about that. You can't, if you think Jesus the teacher, you can't help but think, oh, he, he told parables. That's what makes him so powerful and effective. And yet, there's not a single parable that shows up in John's gospel. You would never know that Jesus relied upon parables in his teaching if all you had was John. Also, there are no exorcisms in John's gospel. Jesus, of course, performs all kinds of signs. That's the word John uses. He can't bring himself to call them miracles because for John, what Jesus did reveals who he is. The purpose of the miracles is not so much to help the recipient. As a matter of fact, he heals people against their will. <laughs> um, no, he, he performs signs miracles so that people will see who he is. And yet, strangely enough, there's not a single occasion where in John's gospel, Jesus casts out a demon. Boy, they show up in the synoptics. Mark, the first six chapters, <laughs> that's like all Jesus is doing is casting out demons right and left. But nowhere in John's gospel, you wouldn't know that Jesus cast out demons if all you had was John's gospel. Here's another Nowhere in John's gospel do we have a story of Jesus choosing 12 disciples. And even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he not only chooses the 12, but it, the names are listed. But not in John's gospel. Now, he'll say at the, in chapter 6, did I not choose the 12, you the 12, and one of you is the devil? So there's a reference to the 12, but we don't get the list of the names of the 12 disciples. Not only that, there are certain disciples that are really important to the narrative in the synoptics that they're not even mentioned in John's gospel. And vice versa, there are disciples that simply make a list in, in the synoptics that, that John features, tells extensive stories about. That's really fascinating to me. Um, for example, uh, nowhere in John's gospel does he mention James, the son of Zebedee. Nowhere in his gospel does he mention John, James's brother. Nowhere. 
The name James or John, they do not appear. There's one reference to the sons of Zebedee in chapter 21, but the names don't appear. Matthew is completely ignored. Wow, that's kind of a surprise, right? Because that's an important story in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus calling a tax collector. No, Matthew doesn't show up in John. You would never know that Jesus had disciples, James and John, or Matthew, if all you had was John's gospel. And yet, here's the surprise. There are certain disciples that he features that barely get mentioned in the synoptics. For example, Philip. Jesus, uh, John's gospel mentions Philip several times. And not only that, even more than that, Thomas. Thomas is a major disciple in John's gospel. Next to Peter, and of course the beloved one, whoever he is, and so so that interesting. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't call him doubting Thomas if it weren't for John's gospel. Thomas simply makes a list of the twelve in the synoptics, but in John's gospel he appears several times. I even think, as scholars have pointed out, Thomas is a hero in John's gospel for a variety of reasons, and maybe that's something we'll talk about later. Here's another one. Nowhere in John's gospel does Jesus establish the Lord's Supper. It's not there. There's no commemoration of the Passover meal and Jesus pressing it into the service. You know, this is my body, the bread, this is my blood. No, the Lord's Supper does not show up in John's gospel. Neither does the Lord's Prayer. Think about that. The Lord's Prayer shows up in Matthew and in Luke, slightly different version, but not in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, he never mentions the virgin birth. Doesn't have a Christmas story. There is no narrative about the miraculous birth of Jesus. That's interesting. Think about it. If all you had was John's Gospel, you wouldn't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> That can't be right. No. John starts his story with John the baptizer. Now, he has this very elaborate prologue that rather than talk about a virgin birth, John would rather talk about the pre-incarnate Jesus, the word that existed from the beginning, the word who is God. So he has a very elaborate claim that Jesus is indeed God in human flesh, but he doesn't tell the story of, the, of angels showing up and announcing um, the birth of Jesus to Mary. There is no great commission in John's gospel. That's fascinating to me. Nowhere do we read, you know, go and make disciples to the, to the 12. Uh, you know, the closest you get is, as, I, as God has, as the Father sent me, so I send you. But the sending there is to basically forgive. Whatever you forgive is forgiven. There is no instruction to go and make disciples. There's no instruction in John's gospel to baptize disciples. As a matter of fact, when it comes to discipleship in John's gospel, there's no talk of, you know, follow me or bring your cross, you know, if, if anyone will deny himself, there's no requirement of self-sacrifice to be a disciple of Jesus. That's paramount in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus talks often about denying yourself, about picking up your cross, about giving everything away, not in John. As a matter of fact, when you look at what Jesus requires of the 12 disciples, he only requires two things. One, 
abide in me, be faithful to me, without describing what that means. So there's no talk of sacrificing yourself, of giving everything away. And, and the other thing, and this is what is what you find in John's Gospel that you don't find the synoptics, is the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. In the synoptics, the standard of love is how you love yourself. You love your neighbor the way you love yourself. So the measurement of love is how you love yourself. Not in John's Gospel. The new commandment is to love one another as I have loved you. So that's interesting to me. Uh, this idea of setting, you know, denying yourself, of picking up a cross, of of suffering for Christ. In John's Gospel, Jesus does not require his disciples to do that. Now he does say that they will be persecuted as he is, that he will they will be hated as he does but he doesn't make that a requirement of being a disciple. And finally, and there are probably many other things that I could point out about that's, that doesn't show up in John, and you can't help but scratch your head and go, I wonder why he doesn't do this. I'll offer two more. Nowhere in John's gospel is Jesus presented, uh, presented as a friend of sinners, right, where he's invited to a table and he eats with tax collectors. Matter of fact, tax collectors don't even show up in John's gospel. He doesn't show up as a friend of prostitutes, right? That idea of Jesus dining with, with the sinners and getting in trouble, that he'll go to any table, that's not in John. Uh, there is one story where he does show mercy to a woman caught in adultery, and that's a, that's a story, you know, he without sin casts a first stone. That's unique to John's gospel. But this idea that Jesus is a friend of sinners, you would never get that from John's gospel, which I find really fascinating. And finally, what doesn't show up in John's gospel is Jesus doesn't spend, not only does he not tell parables, uh, you know, to explain the kingdom of God, he doesn't talk a lot about the kingdom of God. He doesn't, like in Matthew's gospel, ascend a mountain and start saying, you know, delivering a Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't, for the most part, he does not deliver sermons or teachings for the masses. In, in the synoptics, that's what he does. He's constantly preaching to the crowds, parables and sermons, whether Matthew on the mountain, Sermon on the Plain. It looks like Jesus is trying to get his message out to the crowds to see which ones will follow him. And he presents it in Matthew's gospel. You know, I'm talking about a narrow way, so if you follow me, this is what I'm talking about. Not in John. He never preaches a message to the masses. That's a surprise to me. Now, a, ma a message with regards to, you know, what it takes to be his disciple Instead, and now I'm going to switch to what John does include, rather than talk about the kingdom of God, the main topic of Jesus' teaching in the Synoptic Gospel, in John's Gospel, the main topic is Jesus talks about himself. That's the subject of his teaching. Not only it's the purpose of his signs that he performs, the miracles, but when he addresses the crowds, it's always uh, a reflection or a revelation of who he is. That's why John's gospel is filled with the I am statements. Jesus doesn't talk like that in the synoptics. 
But boy, in John's gospel, I am the famous line. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door of the sheep. I mean, the over and over and over again, when Jesus talks to the public, he's talking about himself directly. I am this, although it's, you know, they're metaphors, but still, I am this, I am that, I am this, I am that. And for John's gospel, the word becoming flesh is not only what he does, but a word becoming flesh through his person, through who he is. What he says is what he does. What he does is what he says. So that's interesting to me. He talks very differently uh, in, in John's gospel than he does, and the subject is, is different. You might say in the synoptic gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom, but in John's gospel, he talks about himself as the king, the Messiah. Now, he never says it explicitly. That's why he relies upon all these metaphors. But he really does talk about himself to reveal who he is. Second, what is kind of unique to John's gospel that you don't read in the synoptics. If I were to ask you, how long did Jesus' earthly ministry last? You would say, three years. Everybody knows that. You know, with the day, with the question is whether he died in AD 30 or 33. So, but he started his ministry in 27, either, you know, died in 30 or started it in around 29 and died in 30. Three years. Here's the thing. You only can make that inference because of John's gospel. Well, let me just say it this way. Nowhere in any of the gospels does it explicitly say Jesus ministered for three years. As a matter of fact, the only reason we know his age when he started his ministry is because of Luke's gospel. It says he was around 30 years of age, whatever that means. And not only that, but in John's gospel, when he's kind of crossing swords with the religious leaders, <laughs> when he talks about himself as I am, and they they, they, they say, well, who do you think you are? You've, you've only lived, and get this, you're no more than 50, you're, you're about 50 years old. <laughs> that always cracks me up, say, well, gee, thanks, you know. <laughs> Luke says he's around 30, but Jesus' enemy goes, you know, you look like about a 50-year-old man. Wow. But the idea that Jesus ministered for three years, you don't get that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As a matter of fact, the only... Uh, you know, uh, visit Jesus makes in the Synoptic Gospels is when he goes to claim David's throne, when he is, uh, you know, going to die. The, the movement in the Synoptic Gospels is Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee and goes to Jerusalem once, and there he dies. They kill him. If you were to add up how much time he spent here, there, in the different parts of Galilee— how long it took him to travel to uh, Jerusalem. And even Luke's gospel, he has this kind of meandering travel narrative from chapters 10 to 18. If you add up the days, the weeks that it would have taken, just from, you know, inferring from what the synoptic writers tell us about chronology, the ministry of Jesus lasted about 18 months. 
That's fascinating to me. If all you had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would think Jesus ministered around about a year and a half, 18 months, and he made one trip to Jerusalem. Not in John's gospel. In John's gospel, Jesus goes to Jerusalem five times. Five times. That's the only reason he goes is because he's there to celebrate certain festivals, Jewish feasts. And he goes to Jerusalem three times for three different Passover festivals. Happens in chapter 2, happens in chapter 6, happens in chapter 13. So you go, oh, he went to three different Passover festivals. And if you think of them inclusively, that's at least two years. And he probably ministered, you know, uh, before he took his first Passover visit in John chapter 2. So, wow, the only reason, here it is, the only reason we believe Jesus ministered about three years is because of John's gospel. Three Passover visits may uh, may add up to three years. Isn't that fascinating? And the two other times he goes to Jerusalem, one is for an unnamed feast, just as a feast of the Jews in chapter 5. And then later... We're told, you know, Jesus stays in Jerusalem from the time of the tabernacles. He goes there for the tabernacles, and he stays there, according to John's gospel, all the way through the Feast of Dedication. So that's from September-ish, October-ish, all the way to December, the festival of Hanukkah that we call today. That's interesting, isn't it? That kind of surprised me when I was in college. Like, you know, it was just kind of common knowledge. Everyone knows Jesus ministered for three years. Well, may have ministered for more than three years. Why? Because you, we can't assume that those three Passover visits are the only Passover visits he made to Jerusalem. Maybe he went four or five times, four or five years, and John just chooses to mention these three. We don't know. But you can definitely get the idea that Jesus' ministry lasted at least two and a half, maybe to three years, where in the synoptics you would think his ministry only lasted, um, you know, about 18 months. Also what we get in John's gospel that you don't get in the synoptics, because Jesus talks a lot about himself, I am the bread of life, he says. He talks about and if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which sounds like Eucharistic language, but he's not talking about the Lord's Supper there per se, not explicitly. Because Jesus emphasizes himself over and over again, he's the subject of his teaching. Then in John's gospel, we get it over and over and over again. The, the reason Jesus came, according to John's gospel, is to get people to believe in him and therefore receive eternal life. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about eternal life. Mentions it a few times, but for the most part, it's about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. That's what he wants to talk about, and trying to get people to follow him into the kingdom. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John's Gospel, it's believe in me so you get eternal life. As a matter of fact, our favorite phrase among evangelicals, and it's Billy Graham who made this expression popular, is to be born again. We wouldn't talk about being born again if it weren't for John's gospel. So it's no wonder evangelicals, most evangelicals probably prefer John's gospel. 
It's no wonder. Um, because we hear the gospel is believe in Jesus so you can have eternal life. And that is, that is the theme of John's gospel. Um, and I, I would guess most people who grew up in evangelical church, regardless of your tradition, uh, probably think that's the major message of Jesus. And yet that's not the message in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sure, at times he talks about believing or seeing, having, he talks more like having ears to hear and eyes to see. But his main teaching is about the kingdom of God coming and what it takes to enter the kingdom. And, it, and basically it's follow me. Where in John's gospel, it's believe in me because of who I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Here's a, here's a shocker. If I were to ask you the miracle, the most dramatic miracle that Jesus performed, what would you say? For me, Lazarus. I mean, the raising of Lazarus. You watch a Jesus film, they always include that miracle, always, because <laughs> it is incredibly powerful. And yet, surprise, that's, that is a miracle unique to John's gospel. Neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke tell the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. It's like, you got to be kidding me. And not only is it important for John's gospel, he spends more time on the raising of Lazarus than any other sign. The only exception might be the, the sixth sign, and that is healing the blind man in John chapter 9. So you count the number of words, right? And as John tells the story of the signs of Jesus. Some scholars call the chapters 1 through 12 in the book of signs because it just seems to follow a narrative. Here's the first sign, which is not all that dramatic, changing water to wine. Okay, uh, that's a pretty important miracle, but it's the symbol of what's happening in that miracle that really matters. You know, it's not just that Mary has a crisis because there's not enough wine for the wedding feast. There's something else going on here if it reveals who Jesus is. But they build an intensity. You've noticed that? You know, the first miracle is changing wine and wine. The second sign, I should use John's language, the second sign is healing the noble man from Capernaum from a distance. That's a pretty good sign, you know. And they just keep building in intensity. The third sign is healing the, the lame man who didn't want to be healed. He even complains about it. The fourth and fifth signs are signs that are the same signs that show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke feeding the 5,000, walking on the water. As a matter of fact, the feeding, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle Jesus performs that shows up in all four Gospels. I wouldn't think that. I would expect that the, the raising of Lazarus, <laughs> that's the miracle that should get a lot of press, right? It's so powerful. It's so dramatic. There's so much in John 11 that just lifts our hearts and encourages our hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I love that story. But we wouldn't know about the raising of Lazarus if it weren't for the gospel according to John. Also, it's curious to me how the gospel writers feature the significance of the death of Jesus, and they emphasize it. They emphasize certain facets a little differently than the others. In John's gospel, the cross of Jesus is a victory. And that climactic statement, it is finished. So in John's gospel, 
you don't even get the, 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 any kind of whiff of an impression that Jesus is a victim of, of these imperial powers that are working against him. No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, he says it explicitly in John, you don't take my life away, I lay it down. And that's why the cross in John's gospel is triumphant. And he, he declares he's, it is finished. That's a very different portrait than what you get, say, in Matthew and Mark, where the only thing he says uh, in Mark's gospel is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the line of Psalm 22.1. So what looks like a really dark scene in the synoptic accounts, where Jesus almost looks like a victim of Roman injustice, and Jewish leadership who are arrogant and really betray him. In John's gospel, the cross is a victory. That's why you'll hear many, many sermons where he says, it is finished. We love looking at the cross as a victory, not necessarily as this place of abomination and and also a cry of, of dereliction or, or abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, I'll mention this one thing. Boy, there's so much more we could say, right, about John's gospel. Yeah, we get the new commandment, the emphasis of being born again. John actually tells us explicitly why he wrote the gospel. We get the author's purpose in this gospel. Now, it's true that he's not the only one to give the purpose. Luke gives his purpose at the beginning, and yet he doesn't necessarily give a theological purpose, or it's not like an overall uh, abiding, this is why I've run. He says, you know, other people have done this, and, and I'm going to take a shot at it, and I'm going to do it in what he thinks is a, is a, a particular order. But, you know, the why. Okay, so you know other people have done it, Luke, and you want to give it a particular order without explaining what that is. But that doesn't help me understand your purpose. Why? Why do you decide to write a gospel? So we have to infer, why would Luke write a gospel when he even mentions, that? you know, probably mentions the these other gospels are written, probably Mark, maybe even Matthew. But why? Are you saying Mark and Matthew were deficient? Are you saying that, you know, what are you doing here? Luke doesn't give a, I would say, an explicit purpose. It's almost like a, other people have tried it, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put these things in in an order that I like. Fine. And I'm not, I don't mean to speak diminutively about Luke. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, you don't get a really clear sense of a purpose, a premise, right? This is the point of the story. And, of course, Matthew and Mark, they, they, they give no purpose. So really, for the most part, when it comes to synoptic gospels, you have to infer, why do they write these things? And not only that, we, you know, the earliest manuscripts probably didn't have titles. And the only reason, and so all four gospels are really anonymous. The author doesn't sign on and say, I, Matthew, wrote this gospel. I, John, wrote this gospel. No, no, no. Church tradition tells us, and that church tradition's really probably very reliable because it's very early that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the author of these works. And yet, John states his purpose clearly. At the end of of chapter 20, he says it plainly. Look, 
there, there are many things that Jesus did, but I've told you about these things, these signs, so that you will believe in him. And believe what about him? That he's the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and that he's the son of God. And then he gives the so what? Because if you see him for who he is, if you believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, if you believe that he's the very son of God, word incarnate, then you will receive eternal life. You receive Christ. So that's kind of refreshing, you know. Uh, we're, we're taught in composition. Uh, you need to have the premise. Of course, most of us were supposed to put it in the first chapter. And by the way, some scholars think that's what John's doing with his elaborate prologue. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13 almost reads like a theological digest of the whole gospel. This is the story I'm going to tell you, and it's theological significance. Then he tells the story of the signs that Christ performed and the glory he revealed to his disciples, and then it ends with, so this is why I did it, so that you will believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing him, you will have eternal life. You have Christ. What you didn't know about John's gospel, there's probably so much more to talk about here. But I'm hoping that whets your appetite. I hope what you'll do, and often I'm, I'm really hoping that's what the purpose of these episodes are, is that you get the scriptures out and read them for yourself. Try it. Take John's gospel and, and try to put blinders on, right? I'm not going to think about Matthew, Mark, Luke. I just want to read John for what he's trying to tell me. And I, I promise you, if you read John holistically, start to finish, and take it in as a beautiful piece of literary art, but not only that, that it's the very word of God. I'm telling you, you'll see things and you'll hear things that you've never seen and heard before, and your understanding of Christ and your faith in him will become more rich, and there'll be a depth to your understanding of what it means to believe in him that you wouldn't have gotten if you simply would have just kind of passed over the parts that uh, perhaps you've ignored, <laughs> or uh, you let Matthew, Mark, and Luke intrude on the story, because every single gospel writer is inspired by God. Every word is inspired. And so I'm hoping that what you did know about John will inspire you to plumb the depths of this limitless scripture that we call the very word of God. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to having... Uh, more guests. We won't have as many as we did last year, but I'm looking forward to having some scholars on to talk about some of their latest work that help us read the Bible with more integrity and with more spiritual insight. And uh, I hope you'll continue to tune in, pass the word about our podcast, What You Didn't Know About the Bible. <music>